Our Bible reading is taken this morning from Matthew, Matthew chapter 17, and we're going to read from verse 9 right through to verse 21. Let's hear the word of God, Matthew chapter 9, right through to verse 21. We're reading, of course, from the authorized version. The words will come up on the screen, and we would encourage all who are online to follow the scripture reading. Let's hear the word of God. We count it a privilege and honor to have the word of God and being able to read it publicly and privately. Matthew chapter 17, verse 9. If you find the place, let's hear God's word. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall come first and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord of mercy on my son. For he is a lunatic and sore vexed. For oftentimes he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast them out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Amen. We'll end our reading there at verse 21. And we know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now, my text this morning is found in Matthew chapter 17, verse 21. It reads as follows, How be it this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. And I put it to you this morning that this text suggests to me this title, The Lord's Cure for a Powerless Church. 
The Lord Jesus Christ and three of his disciples has just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Could be Mount Tabor, it could be Mount Hermon. And at the foot of the mountain, they discover a large crowd, and this crowd is gathered around the other nine disciples. And in the midst of the crowd, there's a man, and this man has a big problem in his life. The problem is this. He had a son possessed with a a demon. And this evil spirit, this uh, demon vexed this child, and at times caused him to fall into the fire, times to cause him to fall into the water, and the lad was in danger of losing his life. And the fur father, he was beside himself. Sometime earlier, he had brought the poor lad to Christ's disciples to be cured. The disciples tried. And I have no doubt that they tried together. And they probably tried one after the other. But they were unable to cure him. Initially, they felt they could do something. They tried their best. It was an honest effort. But they failed. And they felt frustrated. And you see, previous in their ministry... In the uh, work of Christ, we read this of them in Mark 6 and in the verse 13. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. But on this occasion, they failed. On this occasion, they felt defeated. On this occasion, they felt their failure. They had no answer as to why they couldn't cast this demon out. And at this point... The Lord Jesus entered upon the scene. According to the other synoptic gospels, he asked the scribes and Pharisees, why question ye but they? You see, they were present. He didn't address the disciples, first of all. He didn't address the man. He focused his attention on the scribes and Pharisees. Why question ye them? You see, I say for our encouragement, the Lord Jesus always acts as the defender of his people. The Lord Jesus has an interest in his people, and he always comes to defend his church. And at this point, the boy's father stepped forward and knelt before the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 15. This is what he said, Matthew 17, Lord of mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. And sore vexed, for oftentimes he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Aren't those sobering words? Is that not a somber reality? Then the Lord Jesus said in the presence of all, O faithless and perverse generation, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Verse 18, And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Later on, the disciples came to the Lord Jesus privately, and they asked this question. Look at verse 19. Why could not we cast him out? And here's the somber answer. Verse 20, and Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. Here's a very startling answer to the cause, why could 
we not cast them out? He then taught them a very valuable lesson for life, for their future ministry. Howbeit this king goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Now, as I've said, I've given the title, The Lord's Cure for a Powerless Church. I want us to think of three things this morning. And the first thing I want us to think of from this uh, narrative that I've brought before you is this. The real problem that must be faced. You see, think of the words, how be it this kind. Underline the words, this kind. There was a twofold problem here. First of all, there was the father's frustration. Then there were the followers' failures. Think of the father's frustration. I want you to think of a boy this morning under demonic control. And is that not a reminder of Satan's power and purpose for the children, for the young people? Is it not the devil's aim to kill and destroy, not only to destroy children and young people's bodies, but to damn their soul in hell for all eternity? We could have asked the father if we could step into the scene, freeze it for a moment, and then step into the scene. We could ask the father, what's wrong with the boy? Was there a problem in his home life growing up? Is there some lack in your parenting skills? I know what's the cause. It's the other children at school. Let's blame the schooling. What about his environment? Was it poor housing stock? Was he starved of love? Did you not show him special care? Maybe the problem was his company and circle of friends. None of those things apply. This father, I believe, loved this boy. I believe that this father was seeking to help his boy. This father wants a cure for his boy. Did you know that this is his only son? How do I know that? Over in the Gospel of Luke, we read this. Luke, verse, Luke 9, verse 38. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only son. And lo, a spirit taketh him. He was seeking his best to help this boy. And he's brought him to Christ's disciples. And now he falls at the feet of Christ, telling Christ all about him, describing in detail what the problem is and his own frustration. You see, here's what the devil had done. He left this boy unable to talk, for this, this was a dumb spirit that had taken hold upon him. He had left this boy unable to hear, because this boy was deaf. And not only that, he left this boy able to desist. This boy had no power over the evil spirit. And at times he foamed at the mouth. And at times he gnashed his teeth. And at times he's falling into the fire. And, and he's falling into the water. You see, the devil is in control of this boy's life. He says in verse 15, Lord of mercy and my son, for he is a lunatic and vexed sore, for oftentimes he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. 
I'm not making it up. If you think of Mark chapter 9, and in Mark chapter 9, we read these words um, in uh, verse 17 and 18. He says, And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. And listen again to Luke chapter 9, and we read there in verse 38. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, mine, for he is mine only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him, that he foameth again, and bruising him, hardly departing from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. Now, I've read those scriptures deliberately because I want you to get the picture. This father is deeply frustrated. The devil is in control of his boy. And how many fathers in the United Kingdom this morning and the devil has got a hold of their children, their boys and their girls. Sin and Satan rule their life. They're under that control and influence. And many of these children have come from a godly home. They, they have saved mummies and daddies. And they've grown up in that home, but they've resented the gospel and they resented Christ and rejected God's salvation. And those children have been the objects of great love and care. But because of sin and Satan, they're now driven by the devil. And many are in a life of drink and alcohol abuse. And many are into a life of drugs. And many are into an immoral lifestyle. And many are just into a hedonistic lifestyle where their, their God is themselves. And their chief pleasure is what they want to do. And they're failing to realize that every choice that they make under the control of sin and Satan has consequences. And it affects their life now in the body. And it affects them in the world to come. What did this father do in his frustration? He brought the boy to the church. To the followers of Christ. And he discovered sadly that the disciples had no ability and no power. Could you think of this dad with great hope? And there he stands in that crowd and he's sad. And he's deeply dispirited. And what can he do? Well, he can only do the thing that he can do, and that's fall at the feet of Jesus. And tell the Lord all about the situation. And call on the Lord. And what did he say? Verse 15, Lord of mercy in my son. And I want to say to every parent this morning, as I say to my own heart, if you have children out of Christ under the control of sin and Satan, because that's whose control they're in. If they're not in Christ, they're without Christ, under the control of sin and Satan. And we pray for them. And what can we do? The best thing is to continue to pray and cry, Lord, of mercy on my son, my daughter. Here's the real problem to be faced. The father's frustration. Are you frustrated as a father? You're powerless because sin and Satan have got a hold of your child. I want you to think of something else. Think of the problem of the followers' failures. 
Look at verse 16. Matthew 17, 16. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Surely those are the haunting words of the Father. Your followers have a complete lack of power and ability on their part. It's not that they didn't want to. It's not that they hadn't done something before. They had. And they'd been successful. But on this occasion they tried and they failed. And a consequence of that failure was this. They were absolutely powerless. There they stand and they have got to face this sobering reality of the absence of power in their lives. Can I tell you something this morning, and I'm speaking from my heart. The best efforts of God's servants can and may end in failure. They have tried to succeed, but their attempt ended in failure on this occasion. I believe they were honest. I believe they were genuine and sincere. Maybe they took it in turn, all nine, one after the other. Maybe they tried as a group. But whatever they tried, it ended in failure. The boy was still under the control of the power of the devil. Let me tell you something else. This failure was public. Because everybody in that crowd knew that they had tried and they would failed. They were in the presence of the scribes and Pharisees. They were before the boy's father. I want to tell you, I see, I believe these disciples felt that frustration. I believe they felt humiliated. I believe they felt downcast and confused. They had no answer for their enemies as to why they couldn't heal this boy. I'll tell you something else. Their failure was a mystery to them. Look at verse 19. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast them out? They asked Christ. As I've said, they've already enjoyed success over the demons. We read there in uh, Luke chapter 10 and in the uh, verse, um, the Lord Jesus, in verse 17, it says, And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. But on this occasion, they couldn't understand why they had failed. Did you know that even the disciples who had failed, failed in the valley as well as in the mountaintop? You think of the three that was up in the mountain with Christ, Peter, James, and John. They're beholding the glorious body of Christ being transfigured before them. They're, they're showing something of the eternal glories of the everlasting Son of the everlasting Father. Did they understand it? Did the significance break in upon them? The answer is no. Remember Peter? Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let us build three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. See, Peter put Christ on a par with Elijah, on a par with Moses. There was a failure to grasp just how unique the Lord Jesus Christ really was. And it took the Father's intervention. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased Hear ye him. Never mind Moses and Elijah. Get your eyes on Christ. See Jesus only. You see, here's a sobering reality. Not only did the nine down in the valley, but the three in the mountaintop experience also failed. 
on how easy it is to feel the Lord. Do you know I think it's the easiest thing in the world? Is there any good thing in us? Do we not feel at times when we've got wisdom? We've got power and we have might and ability. And we forget that we're full of sin and wickedness and prone to do our own thing. Is it not true that we've all done and said things that have displeased the Lord? The reality is we sin day and daily. The reality is we feel. And whether in the valley experience or in the mountaintop experience, even in times of blessing, we sin and feel the Lord. Is not true of days of great revival? In days of great revival, if you read the history, men have embraced false doctrine and teaching. Men have started movements that have undermined the work of God and the revival petered out. I've asked myself this, is there an object lesson for us today in Carried Off FPC? And the answer is yes. And here's the lesson. This is a picture of the church in our day. Powerlessness. This is a picture of the state of the country in our day. Remember 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, it says, The whole world lieth in the lap of wickedness. Think of the fact that the whole world lies in the lap of wickedness. Think of this fact that the vast multitude of sinners all around us are held fast in the grip of the devil and in sin. And sadly, the church of Christ is failing to cast down the strongholds of the devil. And we've got lots of programs, and we've activities, and we have seminars, and we have loads of books, with Bible conferences, with pastor retreats. And I'm not decrying any of them. They've all a place and a role. But the reality is, we've got to face it, we're not defeating the strongholds of the devil. I want to remind you that power doesn't lie in Stormont in Belfast, or Westminster in London, or in Brussels in Europe. It doesn't even rely on Washington, D.C. This world is under the control and domination of the evil one. And remember what Paul told us there in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The reality is the church has lost its spiritual power in comparison to a former day. That power's gone, folks. That power is absent. And here's proof the disciples are conscious of their failure. Why could we not cast them out? They have tried, but they have failed. Why? They're not dealing with the real problem. We are powerless. Why? Where is our power over the prince of darkness? Power over sin. Power of a life of victory. Power in prayer. Power of the word. It's absent. You see, as I think of this question, this is a hard question. Why could not we cast them out? But it's a humbling question. They're admitting their failure. It's an honest question. And I think, in fact, I believe that we in the church of Christ need to ask hard questions. 
And we need to ask them humbly. And we need to ask them honestly before the Lord. You see, if I was to ask, and I said this last week, what is the church of Jesus Christ's greatest need? And it's not a revival of politics. It's not the complete removal of every restriction of the coronavirus. It's not economic help and prosperity for the country. The greatest need is a spiritual awakening from God. A glorious heaven-sent revival of true Bible-believing religion. A rediscovery of the great power of God the Holy Ghost. And if we're going to see our family saved, and we're going to see our friends converted and impacted with the gospel, then we need the power of God. We can't do it without the power of God. You see, these words to me are an indictment. An indictment to me. An indictment against God's people. Powerlessness. That describes the church of our day. We don't have the power of God in and of ourselves. The real problem to be faced. Notice something else here. The root of the problem that must be felt. Look with me at verse 19. Why could not we cast them out? Here's a discussion. Now here's the answer. Look at verse 20. And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. What does that mean? It means their attempt was in the energy of the flesh. It means they were full of their own self-confidence. We can do this, boys. This is not a problem. We've done it before. They're full of their own ability. It's all to do with pride. It's all to do with self. And if you think about the history of the Christian church down through the ages, the church has always been inflated with its own ability. They asked, why could not we cast them out? But they weren't diagnosing the root of the problem. They are saying, yes, we've got a problem. What is the problem? Oh, the ungodly are under the spell and control of the devil. And here's the church comes along. Well, well, how can we deal with it? And I believe the devil's at the back of all that's happening in the country. The false gospel, the breakdown of morality, the explosion of drink and drug culture. This uh, abortion that's being imposed upon Northern Ireland. Uh, homosexuality and the explosion of it and the same-sex marriage uh, and the transgender culture. The devil's at the back of it. And we're powerless. And what does the church need? It needs to face up to the root of the problem. That, That must be felt. Why not? Here's the answer. Because of your unbelief. You see... Let me explain something. I hear people saying today, well, the church needs to have a program of full activities. We fill the building with children and young people. And I'm all for that. And it's right and proper that the church has a a program. But that's not the first thing that we need. We have no shortage of meetings, no shortage of activities, no no shortage of of, um, things that are going on by way of holiday Bible clubs and and schools for children and, and, and meetings for this and meetings for that. 
So often I feel that our activities are dependent on money. And of course, we, we need money and we can't do without it. We're, we're dependent on men and we need men and we can't be without them. We're dependent on mechanisms and we need mechanisms in place so that everything's done decently in order. But that's not the first thing. Do we need a program of activities in our church if it was full of children, Sunday school and young people's fellowship? Other people say, well, you need to have a program of orthodoxy. Need to teach sound theology and preach doctrine. Now, I believe in orthodoxy. I, I am well aware that we know how God worked in Bible times. And we know how God works in the book of Acts. And we know how God worked in days of great revival. And we know at the center of that as God works, is the word of God. And we know that we must give serious ministry to the word. We must preach the word. But there's something before we preach the word. And I want to show you that in a minute. Others say, well, we need a program of apologetics. Let's attempt to reconcile science and philosophy. Let's get the intellectuals flooding into the church. The professors and the lecturers and the the students out of the universities. Let's prove to them that God exists. Let's prove to them that Jesus Christ is real. Let's make it all acceptable to the intellectuals. Speak to them in a language that, that they can understand. Make the church relevant. Make the church acceptable to them. Let's, let's hope to convince them. Suppose I said this morning, Noah's Ark has landed in Mount Ararat. Suppose it come on to the news, Sky News, we have discovered Noah's Ark. Here's the pictures. The, the ice is melting. And here's the, the end of the boat and it's sticking out. And the world photographers go to uh, photograph it. And it's on the television. And we can see it. You might think to yourself, oh, you know what? That's great. The church will be full on Sunday. People will want to come and hear the word of God and get saved. They'll believe it's all true now. Don't you believe a word of it? Because sinners are under the control of sin and Satan. They're dead in trespasses and sin. They're blind. They're dark. And they're dead. And only the spirit of God can revive them. If they discover Noah's Ark, it doesn't mean that the world will accept the Christian faith and the Christian truth. No, the answer doesn't lie in a program of apologetics. Even though I believe that it's right to stand for the defense of the faith. Let me tell you something else. We don't need a rash of new Bible translations either. You see, I've heard this argument for many, many years now. The church needs a new Bible. The authorized version is outdated. The Bible's must be in a language of the common people and uh, they don't read Elizabethan language anymore. They need a language that's in their slang that they can relate to and they can read it then, they'll understand it, they'll embrace its truth and they'll come to uh, 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 a reception of Christ. Is that what's really keeping them from Christ? The answer is no. The devil is. Their sin is. And 400 years ago, unless whenever the Wesley brothers and George Whitfield was preaching in England and Scotland and Wales, 
And they preached about justification by faith alone and regeneration and preached about redemption and preached about the remission of sin. They didn't erase those words because the miners and the working class couldn't understand them. No, they preached the truth. And the Spirit of God applied that word to their heart. You see, the real problem is the heart of man. The heart of man is the heart of the problem. They're under the control of sin and Satan. I've heard this call for a number of decades now, two in particular since I came into the ministry. We need a better message. Let's take away the offense of the cross. Let's not preach about the blood sacrifice of Christ. Let's not preach about heaven and hell and about sin and about repentance. Let's people feel good about themselves. Let them come into church and jump up and down and clap their hands and be happy and go out smiling and say, wasn't that great? We had a great time. See, I come back to this. The church needs to face the root of the problem. There's a lack of spiritual power. Why? It's connected to our unbelief. Now, we do have a degree of spiritual power but not enough to meet this need. This kind, Jesus said, if you look at it, howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. This kind. This situation. What does it need? It needs the power of the Holy Ghost. Let me ask this. How much can we accomplish without the power of the Holy Ghost? And the answer is nothing. And the reality is we can go through all the motions and have our activity and we can preach the word and we can have our praise services and have our youth meetings and we can even have apologetics and we can bring in the best scientist and the greatest intellectual, the brainiest man in the world all into the pulpit here. And we can stand fast to preaching the gospel as we have it revealed to us by the, the Lord. But if it's not connected to the power of the Holy Ghost, it'll come to nothing. You see, they had a head belief that they could do this. But they didn't know about the unbelief that was in their heart. Are we taking it seriously? Let me ask the question. What do I know of the power of the Holy Ghost? Could we not go to the Lord this morning and say, Lord, I repent of my unbelief. Lord, you must have mercy in me. Lord, the problem is my lack of faith. Lord, I'm full of self-confidence. I'm full of pride. Lord, I believe we can do this for you. Oh, Lord, yes, we're amazed at our little success, but Lord, just help us. See, I have a question for us. Do I have the power of God to overcome sin and Satan? Do you have the power of God to overcome sin and Satan? If we see unbelief as it is, it's a sin. It's a wicked sin. It's an evil. It dishonors the Lord. It makes God a liar. It makes the problem last longer. For, for it's, it's a personal thing. It's a painful thing. And I'll tell you something else. Unbelief is a powerful thing. Once it gets a grip. Even the man had to pray, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. 
the real problem that must be faced, the root of the problem that must be felt. Now we're only getting to the heart of the message. I'm going to come back and preach on this next week. I want to think next week about how to uh, fast and pray. But here's the remedy of the problem that must be found. What is the remedy? Look at verse 21. Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. You see, all that we do must be by faith. Forsaking all, I trust him. That is faith in God. The Bible exhorts us, have faith in God. And you see, true faith, it laughs at impossibilities. True faith says it can be done. True faith says it will be done. True faith is the opposite of unbelief. See, unbelief says it can't be done. Unbelief says it won't be done. Unbelief says, because it can't and won't be done, I'm going to oppose it. See, unbelief's the weakness. Here's a prayer. What did this daddy pray for his boy? Lord, have mercy on my son. I want to ask these disciples, did they pray that day? before they tried to exercise this demon? I believe they probably did. Like we have a prayer meeting before the service, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and we pray genuinely and sincerely and honestly, Lord, help us. If you're a Christian, you're born again of the Spirit, washed in the blood. If you're not, I urge you to repent and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. But if you are, and you're a true born-again Christian, then you do pray. You have your daily quiet time. You have your daily devotionals and you read them, you read your Bible and you bow your head and pray, Lord, bless me and my family. And you pray for a few other situations um, by and large. But this isn't talking about general prayer, folks. When the Lord Jesus said, how be it this kind goeth not out but by prayer, he wasn't thinking of general prayer. He was thinking of specific seasons of prayer. Special time set aside for a concentrated effort to wait in God. A a laying hold of God. A getting a hold of the horns of the altar and saying, Lord, I'll not let you go until you bless me. Remember the psalmist said in Psalm 109 verse 4, but I gave myself to prayer. And you see, you as a Christian and me as a Christian pastor, I've got to make a conscious decision and it's this. I'm going to give myself to prayer so that I'll see my children released from sin and Satan. I'll see my family saved, my friends converted. I'll see spiritual power impacting on the life and witness of the church. Remember the 10-day prayer meeting in the book of Acts. Think of the history of the free church and the three-day prayer meeting. Dr. Paisley, Dr. John Douglas was there. I think the Reverend Ivan Foster and maybe a few others were there, but they, they were to the forefront. That was in the very formation of the church. They gave themselves to prayer and fasting. See, they were convinced that they had a need. And what was the need? To be full of the Holy Ghost. To have a baptism of power. And how deeply do we need it? How desperately do we want it? How how badly do we feel this? Are we earnest about prayer? Are we willing to give ourselves to it? I'm going to call us to prayer on Wednesday night or 7 o'clock for the children. I'm going to call for other times of prayer on a Sunday afternoon, a Friday night. I'll be here at other times when I pledge to give myself to prayer. And I want to encourage you to do the same. 
because we need the Lord. Now let me finish, and I'm going to come back to this. We're going to deal with the subject of about fasting uh, next week. This is what kicked the whole message off, but this is the context of it. We're not only earnest about prayer, but we must be earnest about fasting. As I said, we'll deal with it fully next week as to the why we should fast and the way to fast. But it is biblical. It is a good practice, but it's rarely mentioned. And in fact, it's rarely practiced today. And I want to tell you, it's not for an outward show, and it's not for fast, it's not for, uh, for slimming purposes either. Whenever you fast, present your body to the Lord, you become alert, you become diligent, and you're abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose in order to say to the Lord, I'm dead earnest about this. And I'm going to wait until you come. And I believe in the free church. I'm serious about this. And I haven't spoke to the moderator, the clerk, or any of the officers. But I believe that it's well past setting aside times for days of prayer and fasting again for God to come. What's the answer for Northern Ireland? The state of the country and the church. Here's the answer. It's always been the answer. This is the only remedy that God has when his people give themselves to prayer and to fasting. Here's the Lord's cure for a part of his church. And we'll think more about fasting next week. The Lord bless you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming.